welcome to episode 68 of the Truth Quest podcast, the truth about impeachment. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on social media and topics such as impeachment, negative interest rates, Walmart, the federal income tax, the wealth tax, or gold and sound money comes up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. All the episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean.com. The video version of the podcasts are available on YouTube, BitChute, and Brighton. If you're listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down and give the podcast a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. All donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through advertising on Twitter and Facebook. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com. And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Let's start our discussion on impeachment at the beginning, the Constitution. Impeachment is found in several sections of the Constitution, with each section adding to the other. Article 1, Section 2, Clause 5 says the House of Representatives shall choose their speaker and other officers and shall have the sole power of impeachment. So this clause makes it clear that impeachment rests with the House of Representatives, sole power of impeachment. As you will see as we walk through this episode, the House has not lived up to their constitutional obligation in regards to impeachment. But anyways, the House essentially brings an indictment. It's like going to a grand jury. The grand jury being the House of Representatives, the branch of government that is closest to the people and subject to most frequent elections. Article 1, Section 3, Clauses 6 and 7 state the following. The Senate shall have sole power to try all impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside. And no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than the removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to the law. So essentially, after the House impeaches someone... They appoint impeachment managers to prosecute the case against that person in the Senate. The Senate tries the president based on the evidence brought by the House managers. When the president's on trial, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court presides over the case. Two-thirds of members present must vote to convict. The punishment is obviously limited to removal from office and being banned from working for the federal government again. However, the person is still subject to law enforcement prosecution, and we'll touch on that in just a minute. Then we have Article 2, Section 4, where it says the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. So the one part of that phrase I want you to remember is all civil officers. That's the catch-all that includes everyone who currently works for the federal government as an elected or appointed officer or has worked for the federal government in the past. Some may argue that once a person leaves federal employment, the option for impeachment is no longer viable. However, the precedent of impeachment tells us otherwise, and a view of history can help us understand why. More on that later. And finally, we have Article 3, Section 1, which is talking about judges. And it says the judges, both of the Supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior. So what's implied there, of course, is that 
With bad behavior comes the threat of impeachment. You'll see more on that in just a second. So, I want to look at what some of the Founding Fathers had to say about impeachment to shed some light on this constitutional provision. Let's start with George Mason, who said, quote, No point is of more importance than that the right of impeachment should be continued. Shall any man be above justice? End quote. He also said his prescription for impeachment was for attempts to subvert the Constitution. Alexander Hamilton's approach on impeachment was to be used for, quote, the abuse or violation of some public trust or for injuries done immediately to the society itself. Speaking on impeachment in Federalist 65, Hamilton wrote, quote, The subjects of its jurisdiction are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse of violation of some public trust. They are of a nature which may be peculiar propriety, be denominated political, as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to the society itself, end quote. So remember those phrases, violation of public trust and the use of the word political as we move forward. Elbridge Gary considered maladministration as grounds for impeachment. Now this, of course, is not a word we use today, but it means corrupt or incompetent administration of public office. So that's a pretty broad, pretty vague description. So I want you to keep that in mind as we move forward. From his lectures on the law regarding the constitutional provision of impeachment, James Wilson wrote, quote, No one should be secure while he violates the Constitution and the laws. Everyone should be secure while he observes them. He also said, quote, In the United States and in Pennsylvania, impeachment are confined to political characters, to political crimes and misdemeanors, and to political punishments. William Rawl included the inordinate extension of power, the influence of party and a prejudice, and attempts to infringe on the rights of the people. All of that is grounds for impeachment. He also said, quote, Articles of impeachment need not be drawn up with the precision and strictness of indictments. They must, however, be distinct and intelligible. No one is bound to answer to a charge so obscure and ambiguous that it cannot be understood. Additional articles may be exhibited, perhaps at any stage of the prosecution, certainly before the defendant has put in his answer or plea, end quote. So think of this in light of what's going on currently with the Trump impeachment inquiry right now. We're in the middle of October 2019. There hasn't been a House vote, just the Speaker claiming that there is an impeachment inquiry. You have an intelligence committee that's interrogating witnesses behind closed door, and the president comes out and says, hey, we're not going to cooperate until you give me something that's real. That kind of sounds like what William Rawl was saying. It must be distinct and intelligible, not obscure and ambiguous. During the North Carolina ratification debate, James Irondale explained why the impeachment clauses are necessary. Quote, a man in public office who knows that there is no tribunal to punish him may be ready to deviate from his duty, but if he knows there is a tribunal for that purpose, although he may be a man of no principle, the very terror of punishment may perhaps deter him. So in other words, without consequences for anti-constitutional behavior, the country is likely to fall into a post-constitutional, make-the-rules-up-as-you-go, wild, wild west. Think about our current national political environment in light of Iredell's warning. The power of the executive branch far exceeds anything the founders ever imagined. The courts rewrite and ignore the Constitution. Federal bureaucrats target political foes and dictate unconstitutional regulations. Well, why is this? Well, I would argue that it's because Congress has abdicated its duty to wield the tool or punishment of impeachment. 
James Madison, during the Philadelphia Convention, said he includes, quote, negligence, perfidy, and oppression, and betraying his trust to foreign powers as chief causes of impeachment, end quote. So here's another word we don't hear in modern English anymore, perfidy. That means lying, disloyalty, or dishonesty. Again, very vague terms. During the Virginia Ratifying Convention, Madison added, quote, acts of purely partisan nature, quote, end quote, as subject of impeachment. So again, another broad and vague prescription. Edmund Randolph said, quote, the executive will have great opportunity of abusing his powers, particularly in time of war when the military and in some respect the public money was, is in his hands, end quote. Governor Morris said bribery, treachery, and corruption were sufficient grounds for impeachment. Joseph Story, a Supreme Court justice from 1812 to 1845, and the author of Commentaries on the Constitution, had a lot to say about impeachment. Here's one quote. Not but that crimes of a strictly legal character fall within the scope of the power. For as we shall presently see, treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors are expressly within it, but that it has a much enlarged operation and reaches what are aptly termed political offenses, growing out of personal misconduct, or gross neglect, or usurpation, or, or habitual disregard of public interest in the discharge of the duties of public office." End quote. He also claimed that unconstitutional opinions and attempts to subvert the fundamental laws and introduce arbitrary power were also impeachable offenses. He said members of the judicial department may be impeached for malconduct in office. In more of his writings, he said, quote, All officers of the United States, therefore, who hold their appointment under the national government, whether their duties are executive or judicial, in the highest or the lowest departments of the government, with the exception of the officers in the Army and Navy, are properly civil officers within the meaning of the Constitution and liable to impeachment. So basically, he argues that members of Congress are not subject to impeachment, just like members of the military. The former because they're subject to elections the latter because they are subject to military courts and court-martial. He summarized his thoughts on impeachment with this rather long quote, but I think it's worthwhile listening to. Having thus gone through the whole subject of impeachment, it only remains to observe that a close survey of the system, unless we are egregiously deceived, will completely demonstrate the wisdom of the arrangement made in every part of it. The jurisdiction to impeach is placed where it should be, in the possession and power of the immediate representatives of the people. The trial is before a body of great dignity and ability and independence, possessing the requisite knowledge and firmness to act with vigor and to decide with impartiality upon the charges. The persons subjected to the trial are officers of the national government, and the offenses are such as may affect the rights, duties, and relations of the party accused to the public in his political or official character, either directly or remotely. The general rule of law and evidence applicable to common trials are interposed to protect the party against exercise of wanton oppression and arbitrary power. The final judgment is confined to the removal from and disqualification for office, thus limiting the punishment to such modes of redress as to particularly fit for a political tribunal to administer, and as we will secure the public against political injuries. 
Finally, he ends this with, In other respects, the offense is left to be disposed of by the common tribunals of justice, according to the laws of the land, upon an indictment found by a grand jury and a trial by a jury of peers, before whom the party is to stand for his final deliverance, like his fellow citizens. Meaning, these people are not above the law. After impeachment and conviction in the Senate, they can and should be dealt with by the legal system. That's a sample of what the nation's founders had to say. I won't, before we plow forward, I want to tackle an important term in the discussion about impeachment, that being high crimes and misdemeanors. Everyone has an opinion about what this means. Author and historian Kevin Gutzman offers the clearest explanation that I could find. He explained that at the Philadelphia Convention, this term was originally maladministration, but it was argued that that was too general and would be in the eye of the beholder. People would be subject to impeachment at any moment. So George Mason proposed the term high crimes and misdemeanors, which was believed at the time to mean an offense against the Constitution, i.e. ignoring the Constitution or creating laws from the bench. As explained in a legal dictionary I found online, quote, generally debate over the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors has split into two camps. The minority view is held by critics who undertake a literal reading of the Constitution. They maintain that high crimes means what it says, criminal activity, and argue that the framers wanted only criminal activities to be basis for impeachment. The generally accepted viewpoint is much broader. It defines high crimes and misdemeanors as any serious abuse of power, including both legal and illegal activities. Supporters of this reading believe that because impeachment is a public inquiry, first and foremost, it is appropriate to read the phrase broadly in order to provide the most thorough inquiry possible. Thus, a civil officer may face impeachment for misconduct, violations of oath of office, serious incompetence, or, in the case of judges, activities that undermine public confidence or damage the integrity of the judiciary, end quote. So the latter interpretation seems, seems most likely to me, given the language of the Founding Fathers, when describing impeachment, you know, when they use words like political, treachery, lying, perfidy, acting in a partisan nature, maladministration. Those are all very broad and vague terms. I thought what we'd do next is let's examine the history of impeachment. Let's see, let's see who's been caught up in this thing. And so in the 200-plus years that we've been around, only 19 people have been impeached. The two most famous, of course, are Presidents Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton. I want you to stop and think about that number for a minute. Given the broad and vague definition of impeachment, the House has only done it 19 times in 250 years? President Andrew Johnson, he was accused of violating the Tenure of Office Act. The House voted to impeach him in 1868 after he fired his Secretary of War. Can you imagine that, firing someone in your cabinet and being impeached? Crazy. Anyways, he was not convicted in the Senate. President Clinton was impeached in 1998 for misleading a grand jury over his affair with Monica Lewinsky and then persuading others to lie about it. The first impeachment was Senator William Blount in 1797. He was accused of assisting Great Britain in subverting the nation, in other words, treason. Charges were dismissed for lack of jurisdiction. Blount had been expelled from the Senate before the trial anyways. So this is really where it was determined that members of Congress cannot be impeached. If the electorate wants to send corrupt individuals back to Congress, it's on them. Both the House and Senate have rules around censure and expelling members. Then we go into a series of judges who got impeached. So we had Judge John Pickering in 1803 on charges of intoxication on the bench and unlawful handling of property claims. He was found guilty and removed from office. 
Associate Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase was impeached a year later in 1804 on charges of arbitrary and oppressive conduct of trials. He was acquitted in the Senate. A district court judge was impeached in 1830 on charges of abuse of the contempt power. He was acquitted in the Senate. Another district court judge was impeached in 1862 on charges of refusing to hold court and waging war against the United States government. He was found guilty in the Senate, removed from office, and disqualified for future office. Eleven years later, another district court judge was impeached in 1873 on charges of intoxication on the bench. No trial was held. He, he had already resigned. The Senate could have gone through with the trial and conviction after he resigned, which would have disqualified him from future federal office. Secretary of War William Belknap, under President Grant, was impeached in 1876. His rather extravagant lifestyle while in office brought with it some serious questions. Apparently, he was selling weapons, making deals for personal gains. He was impeached on charges of criminal disregard for his office and accepting payments in exchange for making official appointments. Wow. Some good old-fashioned quid pro quo. He resigned right before the House vote, but he was acquitted in the Senate. Ten other judges were impeached on a variety of charges, including abuse of contempt power and other misuses of office, abuse of power, improper business relationships with litigants, accepting bribes, sexual assault, perjury, income tax evasion, favoritism in the appointment of bankruptcy receivers. The list is pretty extensive. Two were acquitted, six were found guilty and removed from office, and two resigned. That's it. 19 total impeachments in the history of America. Any judge that writes laws from the bench should be impeached. They are not interpreting the Constitution. They are reinterpreting it, rewriting it. That is an impeachable offense. Given that, scores of Supreme Court justices and maybe hundreds of federal judges who ignored the Constitution in their opinions or created new ones out of thin air should have all been impeached. Congress can't be bothered with protecting the Constitution. They're too busy fundraising and kissing the ass of lobbyists. If you want to learn more about the corruption of the Supreme Court, listen to episode 16, The Truth About the Supreme Court, and also episodes 46 and 47, where I go through the Roe v. Wade opinion. It really demonstrates how corrupt the Supreme Court can be. Given what you know about impeachment, let's look at the president from a slightly different perspective than perhaps you are used to. See, I don't see any reason to put these men on pedestals, unless, of course, they uphold their oath of office, which most of them do not. They routinely violate their oath by signing unconstitutional legislation and therefore are subject to impeachment. The problem is, who wrote and voted for the unconstitutional legislation before it went to the president's desk? Congress, of course. So they are just as guilty as the president, and they, of course, are not going to impeach a guy for signing legislation that they sent to him. The counterbalance to this, of course, is nullification by the states. See episode 23 for more on that. So let's look at the presidents. Would you believe that George Washington was likely guilty of committing an impeachable offense? Do you remember the Whiskey Rebellion from your history class? He sent a militia into the state of Pennsylvania to squash a rebellion from paying taxes. That's not a constitutionally granted power to the federal government. How about the second president, John Adams? The Alien and Sedition Acts were about as clearly unconstitutional pieces of legislation that has ever been signed by a president. It squashed free speech and dissent. He didn't want journalists and others speaking ill of his administration. But Congress voted for it. Who the hell was going to impeach him? The same Congress that sent him the bill? 
How about our third president, Thomas Jefferson? Do you remember the Louisiana Purchase? But believe it or not, some claim Jefferson's purchase of this territory exceeded his executive power. And by my reading of the Constitution, I'd say they're right. He definitely exceeded his authority. Let's fast forward to a few more presidents. How about the beloved Abraham Lincoln? I understand that for most of you, Lincoln is the greatest president ever. After all, he freed the slaves. But he did suspend habeas corpus. He did throw people in jail. And he did start a war that resulted in the death of, what, 600,000 people? All because the South wanted to secede from the Union? Wow. Presidents also violate their oath of office by signing unconstitutional executive orders. Congress could and should step in and use their power of impeachment on a regular basis to slap the wrists of overzealous executives. Consider Theodore Roosevelt. He signed almost 1,100 executive orders. The first 25 presidents before him signed a total of 1,200 combined. This guy was also anti-big business, acting extra-constitutionally throughout his terms in office. How about Woodrow Wilson? This rather despicable man was literally incapacitated for the last part of his term. Why wasn't he removed from office by Congress? He signed over 1,800 executive orders. How about Franklin Delano Roosevelt? This often revered guy signed 3,700 executive orders. The Supreme Court struck down many of his orders and several New Deal pieces of legislation. How about his successor, Harry Truman? Remember the Korean War? Did Congress declare wars required by the Constitution? This guy also loved to tamper with the economy, trying to implement wage controls and other bullshit stuff. When it comes to declaring war, many argue that all presidents that subject the military to undeclared wars should have been impeached. Korea, Vietnam, Kosovo, Panama, El Salvador, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, and countless others. The War Powers Act, passed in 1973, was an effort to re put some restrictions around the president's use of the military. One of the provisions was the responsibility to notify Congress within 48 hours whenever military forces are introduced, quote, into hostilities or into situations where imminent involvement in hostilities is clearly indicated by the circumstances, end quote. Presidents were also required to end foreign military actions after 60 days unless Congress provided a declaration of war or an authorization for the operation to continue. So this is another example of Congress's abdication of their constitutional duty. I mean, either declare war or pull the funding. I mean, shit or get off the pot. Think about our involvement in Afghanistan. 16 years in an undeclared war. I mean, what other evidence do you need? How about JFK? Another revered president. Did we declare war when we went to Vietnam? What about his numerous affairs? If you apply the Democrats' Clinton standard, you know the one, it's no big deal, it's his personal life, well, there's no problem. But based on the real grounds of impeachment, lying, violating the public trust, dishonesty, certainly his philandering was an impeachable offense. Again, the undeclared Vietnam War. And of course, when it comes to LBJ, if you use the Trump standard currently being employed by the Democrats basically saying a dislikable guy is impeachable, LBJ certainly would have qualified for impeachment many times over. Nixon, Vietnam War again, still undeclared. He also removed the United States from the gold standard. How in the hell is that an executive power? He unilaterally made that decision. 
What if Congress had done their job and threatened to impeach Nixon if he removed the dollar from the gold standard? First of all, we would have had to have stopped the war in Vietnam because we needed to print money to fund it. But do you think we'd be in $22 trillion in debt today? Do you think the dollar would have lost a third of its value since then? How about Reagan? Certainly Iran-Contra, the Marines in Beirut, no declaration of war there, military personnel in El Salvador. Then we have the two Bush presidents with the wars in Iraq. Did Congress declare war as required by the Constitution? Now, I'll give, some, I'll give them some credit for getting congressional authorization and getting UN buy-in, but they still did not follow the Constitution. And when it comes to Bush 43, the Patriot Act? Hello? Besides the Alien and Sedition Acts, there really has not been a more unconstitutional law passed in the history of the country. But here we are again. Who the hell's going to impeach him? The body who sent him the legislation to sign? And finally, what about Obama? The president that to this day claims his administration is scandal-free. Well, given the standard for impeachment that the Democrat and the media are applying to Trump, Obama should have been impeached for his complicity in the Steele dossier, where a foreign agent dug up dirt on Trump at the behest of Hillary. He can be impeached for wiretapping Trump's campaign, the coup in Ukraine. How about the pallets of cash sent to Iran? How about the IRS harassment of Tea Party groups? Benghazi. How about the one where he spoke to the Russian president on a hot mic saying, wait until the election when I'll have more flexibility. Can you imagine if Trump did that? Lying to the American people on at least a dozen occasions. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Lying is one of the things the founders pointed out is an impeachable offense. How about the fast and furious gun running scheme? How about drone strikes on American citizens? The war in Syria and Libya? Many members of Obama's administration should have been and still should be impeached. Just because they left their position, they can still be impeached and convicted. Hillary Clinton should have been impeached by the Republican-controlled House and convicted by the Senate for her email server scandal in the least. Her handling of Benghazi certainly qualifies as impeachable. That conviction in the Senate would have precluded her from holding office in the federal government ever again. How about former Attorney General Eric Holder? who described himself as Obama's wingman. If that's not impeachable, I don't know what is. Hell, he was found in contempt of Congress. That's not impeachable? Former Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke should be impeached for lying to Congress about monetizing the debt. Former Attorney General Loretta Lynch should be impeached for meeting Bill Clinton on the tarmac in Arizona right in the middle of Hillary's email scandal. What about John Brennan, James Comey, other people in the FBI and the CIA like Peter Stroke and Lisa Page, they should all be impeached and convicted for their role in the Russia collusion cabal. Brennan lied to Congress about the NSA spying long before it became a political hack for the National Democrats. That's not only impeachable, but criminal. Lois Lerner at the IRS should have been impeached and convicted. Former Vice President Joe Biden should be impeached. He bragged about threatening the president of Ukraine by withholding a billion dollars in U.S. loan guarantees if he didn't fire the country's lead investigator, who just so happened were leading an inquiry into the company in which Biden's son Hunter sat on the board. Come to think of it, the, the entire Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco, the most overturned court in the nation at the Supreme Court, should have been impeached and abolished decades ago. Every member of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors should have been impeached probably since at least the time of Alan Greenspan or maybe back to Nixon for violating the constitutional requirement of only coining money. Bill Clinton should have been criminally prosecuted for perjury and witness tampering 
in addition to the Lewinsky impeachment, he should have been impeached for sending troops to Kosovo. So that's the truth about impeachment. The president, vice president, any federally appointed or federally hired employees are subject to it. The truth is the Constitution is both specific and vague when it comes to impeachment. Bribery and treason are specific, but high crimes and misdemeanors is not. By all indications, this is done purposely. The founders and ratifiers of the Constitution spoke often of political crimes, and because of that, it looks to me like the House can impeach or indict, if you prefer that description, for just about anything, as long as they can get enough members to agree that it's an impeachable offense. Article 2, Section 4 gives them sole power and sole discretion to impeach. And when looked at honestly, the House is bound by their oath of office to pursue impeachment when the situation merits it. However, the Senate, whose members used to be appointed by the individual state legislatures prior to the 17th Amendment, are there sort of a voice of reason to hear the case set out by the less tame and, shall we say, more emotional part of the legislative branch of government. What I learned from my research in, from this episode is impeachment has not been employed enough over the last 250 years. Proving my point that I make over and over again in these episodes, that we live in a post-constitutional America. If Congress protected and defended the Constitution, scores of judges who legislate from the bench by creating constitutional rights out of thin air or ignore the Constitution should have been impeached. I've already laid out the case for the impeachment of most presidents. On top of that, there are thousands of federal employees and appointees who should have been impeached as well. Had Congress not abdicated its constitutional duties over the decades and centuries, using impeachment and withholding funding from unconstitutional programs, wars, federal agencies, America would be a much more stable place, and I believe a less divided and a more principle-driven place. If for no other reason than the threat of impeachment hanging over the head of every federal officer, whether they be elected, appointed, or employed. Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.